Welcome to the In Defense of Ska podcast. There's a lot of like, okay, well, you like Ska named three bands that aren't the boss tones. I'm your host, Aaron Carnes, music journalist and author of the book In Defense of Ska. And I'm your co-host, Adam Davis, veteran Ska musician from the bands Omnigon and Link 8. On our show, we aim to push back on the mainstream's negative perception of Ska music. There are so many great untold stories throughout the history of Ska. The show features interviews with everyone from the Mighty Mighty Boss Tones to Fishbone, Fall Out Boy singer Patrick Stump, and the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Join us on In Defense of Ska from the Consequence Podcast Network. Consequence Podcast Network. This is The Opus. It's an exploration of legendary records and their ongoing legacy. Not just the history, but how the music continues to evolve and how it keeps shaping lives, shaking rafters, and embedding itself into our culture. I'm your host, Jill Hopkins. I'm a radio host, a musician, a DJ, and a podcast host from Chicago. Maybe you're a longtime fan that wants to go deeper. Maybe you're a first-time listener looking to dive in. Either way, you're in the right place. Let's go. Collective consciousness, commonality. That's a phrase I've heard a lot and thought about a lot in the last few weeks, but it's one that I'd never heard before. It's the idea, more or less, that we can identify with and feel connected to all of it, I guess. And that all things, if done in the spirit of collective consciousness, commonality, can be felt by and connected to by all people. Abraxas by Santana was made with a collective consciousness commonality in mind. I mean, at least that's what Carlos Santana told me. Right now, though, I'm consciously trying to listen to Abraxas on my record player. I'm trying in my living room to find the sweet spot between speakers. We have a, a, a new setup at the house. So, you know, trial and error. I have a, a high fidelity copy of Abraxas on loan from a friend, so I have to give it back. So while I have it, I want to make sure that I am taking it in from the optimum part of the house. The house. I have been in this house for the better part of eight months. Because where I live, like most of the rest of the world, we're not doing a great job of keeping this virus at bay. There are more people in the band Santana than I've seen at once any place other than a grocery store in eight months been really disconnected from my collective, you could say. And in a different timeline, I'd be starting this podcast, this season, this episode from a guitar shop or a drum store or a festival ground, or maybe tried to talk to the people in charge about, I don't know, sending me to San Francisco or to Tijuana or to Puerto Rico, 
or somewhere that's significant to the formation and existence of this band, to the making of this 50-year-old album. But I'm at home, and everybody I spoke to about Abraxas for this podcast is at home too. Musicologists and the professors I spoke to were at home where they've also been teaching for the better part of a year. The people who wrote and performed on this album, they're at home. Way nicer homes than mine, but at home. The people who learned from and connected to Abraxas that I got to talk to about their art, at home. And you, listening, good chance that you're at home too. But instead of dwelling on my dwelling, I'm going to appreciate that home is where the good speakers are. And right now, I'm still trying to find that sweet spot in between them so I can fully let Santana's 1970s sophomore slam dunk wash over me in the way that it and I deserve. It is 2020. We live in post-Despacito times, I, I think I'm calling it now. We live in a world where Latin music and pop music are very often the same chart-dominating thing. I live in a part of the United States where reggaeton is just what summer sounds like. Latin music is inescapable. Not that I'm looking for a way out, but Santana's music and this album in particular, have always been in my life. Latin music has always been in my life. Afro-Cuban music has always been in my life. From the parties that my mom and her siblings would throw when I was a kid, to the parties that my mom and my siblings would be horrified to find out that I threw as an adult. So it is difficult for me to imagine a time where people had to have their hands held and led to the kinds of Latin sounds, to the kinds of Afro-Caribbean sounds that are baked into Santana's music. It's also really funny to me. When reviewing this album in 1970, Jim Nash from Rolling Stone magazine had to include the words Puerto Rico in parentheses after the words timbales and congas because people just didn't know what those were. Okay, American people didn't know what those were. Okay, white people didn't know what those things were. In that same review, Nash says of Santana, of white bands, only Chicago can equal their percussion, but Chicago is held together by horns while Santana is held together by timbales and congas, parentheses, Puerto Rico. Why is that so funny to me? I mean, it was 1970. It wasn't anybody's fault. The kind of percussion that you hear on a Braxis wasn't anything you'd hear on the radio. And Carlos Santana's guitar voice seemed to some to be more at home in a blues bar at 1 a.m. than on a rock album. And there's that word again. Home. 
with Abraxas and, to a lesser extent, with their first album, Santana found a home on rock radio. Their version of Black Magic Woman found a home on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. And Oye Como Va was given a home in two separate Grammy Halls of Fame. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, this is the opus. And I'm Jill Hopkins. And this season, we're digging into Abraxas, the second studio album by Santana. Make yourselves at home. you're allowed to talk about the late 1960s and bands from San Francisco without also talking about Bill Graham. Everyone I spoke to brought him up before I even had a chance to. It was it was a good scene and central to that scene of course was Bill Graham and Bill Graham was the guy who really propelled everything forward by getting the bands together, by organizing the bands, by getting the Fillmore, the Fillmore East and Fillmore West. That's Mark Brill. He's a music historian and an associate professor of music at the University of Texas in San Antonio. He wrote Abraxas's entry into the Library of Congress. He knows his stuff. And like anyone who's studied the time and the place, he knows that Bill Graham's influence and importance to music in the 1960s cannot be overstated. Bill Graham started out as a manager for a mime troupe in the Bay Area in the mid-1960s. And that feels like a really good microcosm of what things were like back then. In the same year that two separate Beatles albums and three Beach Boys albums were released to huge numbers, groups of mimes in San Francisco were also popular enough that they needed management and representation. But the mimes were spicy, I, I suppose. Yeah, the mimes play heavily into this story. Their troop leader was arrested on obscenity charges during an outdoor performance. And let me just tell you, there are some things that no one can make me Google. So I cannot accurately describe what happened. You can ruin your algorithm if you want to, uh, but I refuse to type San Francisco mime obscenity into my search bar. Bill Graham organized a benefit concert to cover the troops' legal fees. And that concert was a huge success. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> and that success was so big that Bill saw a really big opportunity. He started organizing and promoting more shows. But they were rented places. As people went to those shows, those shows turned into something more. Something bigger. They turned into social functions for burgeoning movements. Places to share ideas and make plans. And speeches about peace 
and justice and human rights. And sometimes right on the stages at those rented venues, which didn't always square well with the people who were doing the renting. So Graham went back to Charles Sullivan. He was an entrepreneur and a businessman in San Francisco who owned the master lease on the Fillmore Auditorium, where the <sighs> naked mime fundraising concert was held. And uh, he secured a contract from Sullivan for the open dates at the Fillmore in 1966. The Fillmore and the acts that Charles Sullivan had there were already a, a really big deal in the Bay, even then. The Temptations and Bobby Blue Bland and other R&B acts were Sullivan's specialty. He was one of the most successful black entertainment businessmen in all of California. And Graham credits him and this passing of the torch, as it were, for giving him his real start. And with the Fillmore as a home base for talent, a scene erupted. And into that scene walked Carlos Santana, who was, by the way, just made for it. Yeah, the whole scene was just uh, very experimental, right? Um, if you were conventional, you were out. You had, a, you had to stretch the envelope. And so they did. And, and into that scene comes young, brash, incredibly talented 17-year-old Carlos Santana. And he's part of that scene and says, hey, look what I can do. And sure enough, Bill Graham and everybody around say, wow, look what he can do. Carlos Santana, guitarist, son of a Mexican band leader, the namesake of one of Bill Graham's favorite bands. In 1968, and of course, Santana was one of his favorite bands. I mean, he saw all the bands, so he could compare and contrast. And if you saw Santana back then, they were your favorite band. Carlos Santana made his electric guitar sing like no one else was doing. And the melody those guitars sang was along to these Afro-Caribbean rhythms that were laid down by one of the tightest rhythm sections anyone ever heard. But with that tightness, counterintuitively came a, a, a penchant for meandering. Santana was still at that point a jam band. But Bill Graham thought the band could wrangle in their live freeform jammy thing. Other people, <laughs> Grateful Dead, were already doing that, like, just down the street. And they were doing it really, really well. Santana's thing could and should showcase how tight this band was. That meant structure. Like, actual songs. Jill, what do you mean, actual songs? That's a really good question, Jill. Carlos freaking Santana wanted to know, too. In a great musician named Albert Jan Quinto, you know, because Albert Jan Quinto was playing piano in the south side of Chicago with Otis Pan. I mean, I mean with, uh, he was playing like Otis Pan and Monk, but he was playing with James Cotton, you know, in, in the south side of Chicago. South side! Sorry, that's, I have to do that by law. 
I, I just do. Sorry. Uh, you should know who Alberto Gianquinto is, though. He's a beast of a pianist. And if you are a fan of Abraxas, uh, you might recognize him from Incident at Neshebor. He wrote it with Carlos. We'll talk more about that later. So he, he helped us do what Bill Graham says. You guys play a bunch of long-ass jams, and there's no songs in there. I go, a song? What do you mean a song? You know, like an intro and a verse and a chorus and then the verse and then the bridge, and we're like, what? You know? So between Bill Graham and Albert Jan Quinto, they taught us the the need to, to create songs for albums instead of just long jams. Armed with that advice, Santana recorded their first album. But they hadn't yet released it in the summer of 1968. And rock and roll in general... That summer was a really, uh, it was a weird time. All the major players were going through it. Jimi Hendrix just wasn't selling records like he used to. Sly Stone was at the, the crest of that year's drug issue. And the Doors' Jim Morrison was involved in his own little incident, mime, indecency type thing. It was... It was a wild time. But while all this was going on, Bill Graham was just working. And he was working on his biggest show to date. Woodstock. Bill Graham was a trusted enough figure with a golden ear for talent. So when the weekend of peace and love needed acts, they came to him. Graham knew what Santana was capable of. Graham knew that Santana could be enormous. He just needed to get them in front of the right audience. And why not, you know, 400,000 of his closest friends. Graham thought he might be able to kill two birds with one stone here. He could promote one of his favorite bands, and he could help move the sound of rock and roll into a new place. This is Ashley Kahn. He co-authored the autobiography of Carlos Santana, the universal tone, bringing my story to light. I think that um, Carlos and, and Santana in general were the right band at the right time. Yeah. And timing was definitely something that was on their side, but they knew how to take advantage of it too. And the fact that they uh, allied themselves with Bill Graham, who really was the kingmaker, yeah. you know, in, in the San Francisco scene and was looked upon to make Woodstock work, you know, uh, because the people here, the producers, needed someone with whose name and weight was uh, of a certain, you know, level uh, at that time. And so Bill's involvement with Woodstock is what led to Santana being booked. Now, Santana, though, was he would not have stepped up for band, any band in the San Francisco scene just because he was involved with them. He wanted a surefire thing, and the consistency with how that band was hitting live by, 19, by the late 1968 and then through 69 to, to the uh, Woodstock point, you know, to the point of Woodstock, you know, is a very important factor, too. Ladies and gentlemen... So on Saturday, August 16th, 1969, this group of incredibly talented 
impossibly young men are on stage in front of 450,000 people. They thought they'd be playing later in the evening, but some of the other acts got stuck in traffic that comes with a crowd of 450,000, so they had no idea that they'd be going on at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And since they thought they had some time to kill, they accepted a little gift from their friend from the hate, Jerry Garcia. He was a familiar San Francisco face in the Bethel, New York crowd. So the band, Carlos on guitar, David Brown on bass, the percussion section of Chipito Arias, Michael Carabello, and Michael Shreve, and Greg Raleigh on keys and vocals, was having a very Woodstock time. And then they went on stage. Like, right away. Like, right then. And they killed. They slayed. Santana's drummer, Michael Shreve, was 20. 20 years old at the time. He's a little baby child. His solo during Soul Sacrifice at the festival would end up going a long way towards earning him a spot on most major publications' best drummer of all time lists. Here's what he was thinking on that stage. I wasn't nervous. Personally, I wasn't nervous. It, it, it was too many people to like relate to. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that I could do was like to relate to my, to my buddies, to the band. And we set up pretty tight as well. And we played to each other, which is what we always did. We never quite saw ourselves as a worldly entertainers, you know, facing the audience. We, when we performed, we tried to get each other off. You know what I mean? We tried to really make it a thing between ourselves. And that's what happened there. I mean, it, it, um, we had been on the road and we had been playing. It, it, Santana was a live band, mm -hmm. right? So when, when we were put in that situation, it, it clicked. And I think also that just the tribal nature of the music really reflected the audience as well like the tribal nature of the audience they picked up on that band being a rhythm a band as rhythm period you know so yeah. um you know we were intense we were really intense <laughs> carlos santana to witness 550,000 people all of a sudden awaken to a sound there was only three bands. I mean, there's a lot of bands, but only three bands. Sly, 2, two 3.30 in the morning, Jimmy and Santana. Everybody else have to fight for fourth place, you know? Because this three, this three, this three one, and I was there, man. Sly Stone, numero uno, at 2.30 in the morning. This is at a peak when, you know, dance to the music. I mean, Sly Stone at Woodstock, Jimmy Hendrix and Santana. The experience that we had because of Bill Graham and people who allowed us to play that festival when we didn't even have an album out, you know? But when we hit it and then all of a sudden the call, I mean, it, it, it's in the video, you know, it's, it's a witness, you know? All of the time people became like one wave of one, one wave of one, you know, and celebrating and dancing and, you know, collective consciousness commonality.
And that collective made sure that word traveled fast. Because 450,000 melted faces, that news is going to travel fast. And then Santana's first album came out two weeks later. But Santana and the band would not rest on the laurels that they'd set up with their debut album or the release of Woodstock's documentary soundtrack, on which they featured heavily. Just a year after the festival, they'd give us an album that would work hard to cement them in the rock and roll canon and bring Latin and African music to the forefront of mainstream America. consciousness, commonality. That's why most fans of contemporary music have love for Santana. As a band, Carlos as a guitar player, and Abraxas as an album. That's why Abraxas sounds out of place like nowhere. Imagine hearing it at a rager of a house party. It makes sense, right? Okay, now imagine it at a makeout party. There's a red light bulb screwed in. Still makes sense. In your headphones at work. Booming out of a stereo at a car show. Over the PA at Walgreens. It still makes sense. And I wanted to know if that was by design. You know, sometimes an artist doesn't want to make their music as accessible as possible. Certainly not as accessible as this 50-year-old album that you can hear anywhere is. Being niche and staying obscure, maintaining an underground presence, there's nothing wrong with any of that. And I can't wait to go see some of those acts after this whole thing is over. But Carlos Santana had global appeal in mind. Much like a band by... uh, this point in 1970 had just called it a day the first time that people remember the beatles at uh ed sullivan's show you know all they can remember is twist and shout but twist and shout was already done by the iceman brothers who were like the first michael jackson yeah singing you know and that song went viral we didn't we didn't even have words like viral then you know but Shake it out, baby. Twist and shout. I mean, come on. This is this was viral, viral. You know, be, before the Beatles. That's you know that took him to a whole other plateau. So I'm always looking for collective consciousness, commonality, mystical medicine 
music. All right. <laughs> and so when I go to Africa, I'm not a tourist. With all respect to a lot of artists, when they go to Africa, they don't see them the same way they see me because they got pregnant with Samapati or Europa or this or that, you know. So all, all of a sudden, I'm the living room. I'm part of the family. And I can't tell you what an incredible honor it is to go to Ghana or South Africa or Morocco and to be accepted, to be part and parcel of the family. It's, it's a great honor. Carlos Santana wanted to go viral before viral was even a thing. But Michael Shreve, the drummer, he didn't have that same, I don't know, forethought or desire even. He just wanted to make a good record. I wasn't thinking like that. I was just trying to make it as, as good as we possibly could. I think that universal commonality, um, I think it's the kind of thing that it happens after it's, it's released and people relate to it, you know. But I think in doing it, I mean, I wasn't thinking like that. Yeah. Okay. No band is a monolith. The collective, though, the record buying public, and I think most surprisingly, rock radio really embraced this album. And the singles are still in rotation. I don't know if you know this, but you could turn on the radio in most cities in the United States, and within an hour, it's a good chance you're going to hear Black Magic Woman. And we had we had some hit tunes, and that helped. I mean, Oya Komova and Black Magic Woman; um, those became big hits, and that always helps. Yeah. So we we di didn't do things in order to get hit records. We never even thought like that. You know, we just thought this sounds great, or this feels really, really cool, and um, you know, let let's do it. But the real magic in Abraxas lies in it as a whole, as a series of sweets and movements, as a statement of representation and a fusion of Africa and the Caribbean and Mexico and mid-century jazz and out-of-this-world incredible musicianship. So hey, let's let's do this together. Let's form a collective consciousness. You find your sweet spot between the speakers, wherever you call home. And let this album wash over you in the way that it and you deserve. In future episodes this season, we're going to talk about what it was like to make this album. We're going to talk about the individual tracks and the composers, what was borrowed, what was written. We're going to talk about the feeling of finding the right producer and solidifying the signature sound. We'll talk about meeting your heroes and hear about Carlos and Miles Davis and their evolving relationship that keeps growing in spite of the fact that Miles Davis left this plane in the early 90s. We'll hear from people who've made their own music and created their own sounds because of Santana and Abraxas. And we'll dive into the imagery, the cover art, the word Abraxas, and how 
I found out over the last couple of weeks that even those two things, like all art, is subjective. But ideally, it's a part of our collective consciousness commonality. I think that's what we're going to name this episode. <laughs> all right. Thank you. So, you you know, you did my job for me there. I appreciate it. <laughs> my joy to, to be of service to you in your heart. For Consequence of Sound and Sony Legacy, I'm Jill Hopkins, and this is The Opus. I'll see you next time. Consequence Podcast Network. I've never been this nervous in my life. Greetings from Longtime No See the Podcast. Every week we'll be inviting two blindfolded comedians to answer a series of questions about their careers, lives, and opinions. Now, let's remove those blindfolds and start the show. Hi! What would your opening line with your celebrity crush be? Loved you in Harry Potter. <laughs> Worst date you've been on? A man bit my neck mole off once. You did what? A man bit my neck mole off. Oh my God, Jack almost fell off his chair. <laughs> Be sure to follow and subscribe to the podcast.